Let's go ahead and look at these notes. Those are the, that are following on the teaching notes, I'm going to start here. In paragraph A, <clears throat> this is a message that I have given many times over the last 25, 30 years about John the Apostle. It's one of my favorites because it, it touches my heart when I prepare for it and when I share it. This remarkable statement that he made in John 21, in verse 21 verse, where he gave insight into three facets of how he saw his spiritual identity. Now, in this community, this is a very familiar truth, but it's a truth that's good to hear over and over, just so that we plumb line our heart to it again and again. Having shared this many times over the years, I need to pause regularly and plumb line my heart, realign myself to this. Paragraph A, when Jesus was training his disciples, he called them often over and over to find their identity in their relationship to him, not in what they accomplished and what they looked like in the eyes of other people. And that's a very normal thing for us to find our identity and how people view us instead of how the Lord does. But the Lord calls us to realign our heart in a very intentional and a regular way. And it's key to our spiritual of our heart being vibrant in the spirit in order to do this. Now, over, over the years, I've heard uh, the statement of many believers, as you have as well. They uh, talk about being spiritually dry. It's a very normal thing. They're disillusioned spiritually, or they're burned out, those kind of terms. And the question you ask is, why is this so common? And it is common across the body of Christ, across the world. And one of the reasons is because People pursue God, and they pursue ministry with a wrong mindset. And it's very easy and very common to do that. They pursue ministry. I do, you do, they do, and we have to stop and realign so that we don't do this. We pursue our ministries easily, disconnected from a conversation with the Lord's heart. And I don't mean an all-day, every-minute conversation, but disconnected from the Lord's heart and disconnected from the truth of how the Lord sees us. And when we do that, the natural result is we feel burned out. We feel spiritually dry or spiritually bored. Our life, our spiritual life, we get disillusioned. It's really easy. Matter of fact, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, to the famous church at Ephesus, they had a great revival, but they ended up doing ministry disconnected from the Lord. And the Lord actually appeared uh, to John and told them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, tell them, I know they're serving me, but they don't love me. They don't connect to me like they used to. And tell them, I have this against them. I want them to reconnect to my heart. Now, King David saw this way back 3,000 years ago when he said, serve the Lord. And then he gave a few more exhortations. And then he talked about kiss the son. In other words, serve the Lord but with this affectionate interaction with you in your heart towards him. To serve him without that, it just so easily ends up in burnout and spiritual dryness, etc. Look at paragra paragraph B. We're going to go right to the very beginning, to Abraham. And Abraham is called the father of our faith. That's what Paul the Apostle called him, Romans 4. And as the father of our faith, he is a model of how to live by faith. And the Lord gave Abraham a number of glorious promises, but the Lord spoke to him the very first time the Lord spoke to him about how to live by faith. He is here, uh, is here in Genesis 15, verse 1. And I find this very significant. The Lord says, Abraham, he's speaking to him audibly. I've given you all these promises, but let me tell you how to operate by faith. Number one, know this, Abraham, that I am your exceeding great reward. Not those promises. I myself am your greatest reward. He had promised Abraham incredible wealth, and he had it. Incredible honor. You can read it in Genesis 12 and 13. Abraham, you're going to have a, a name famous through history. You're going to have a historic impact on nations. It goes on and on. I mean, Abraham has these remarkable promises. But the Lord tells him, understand, 
these promises are secondary blessings, secondary rewards. I, myself, <clears throat> I am your exceeding great reward. Your interaction with my heart and me moving on your heart, this is a greater reward than all the wealth and influence and impact I'm going to give you. Look at paragraph C here on the teaching notes here. Very simple. This is so simple, but uh, it just it's worth saying anyway. I want to define that what does it mean for Jesus to be our exceeding great reward? Well, real simply, and it's more than this, but this is the foundational reality. It's receiving the grace of God where we feel the love of God for us, just even a little bit. But not only that, we feel love back to him just a little bit. And by that interaction that we have with him, we can have that feeling of feeling loved and loving back. And I have uh, discovered over the years, as many of you have, <clears throat> a little bit of that really makes a great impact on our spiritual life. This is the way to have a vibrant spirit, to interact in this. So as I call people to this, it's not a, you ought to do this. It's, do you realize the privilege and the impact this kind of interaction has on your spiritual life? I mean, it's a glorious reality. It tenderizes us. It fascinates us. Even a little bit of this feeling that he loves us, and we get this through interacting with him through the words, where we take the Bible, we open it up, we talk to him when we read the Bible. We actually turn the Bible into the conversation we have with him, and one of the phrases I like to say regularly when I see a promise in the Bible is I like to pause, and not just underline it in my Bible, but actually pause and say, thank you, show me more. I turn that promise into a short conversation and often I'll add a few more phrases to it. But I want to talk to the living word when I'm reading the written word. And that causes those sparks to touch our heart. I don't mean all the time, but more than here and there. And this is what causes us to enter into this reality of him being our exceeding great reward in this age. Not just in the age to come. Where a little bit we feel he loves us. And a little bit we feel love back. And I always want more. But a little bit of that, it shifts the way that we look at life. Because when that's happening in my heart, and I'm facing pressures, I feel strong, and those pressures don't seem so big. When I don't have that, those same pressures, which are real pressures, they seem overwhelming. But when I have that internal in, uh, interaction with the Lord, it, it changes the way that we process our life and the way that we move forward in the Lord. Paragraph D. I'm going to define, very simple again, this is almost so simple it doesn't need being said, two categories of God's blessing. Or using the language that God used to Abraham, rewards. He says, I'm your great reward or your great blessing. You could use either word uh, interchangeably in this context. There's what I call the primary or the greatest blessing, the greatest rewards, and the secondary ones. Now, the secondary ones I love. The secondary blessings or rewards in our life is things like God's favor on our relationships. I love that. God's favor on our circumstances, on finances, on doors opening, opportunities. God's favor on our ministry impact, whether it's to our family, our neighbors, to the marketplace, where there's a spirit of power and life on our ministry to other people. I love those blessings on my life. And I always want a double portion of them. But I do understand those are the secondary blessings. The primary blessing is the interaction of my heart with him. And when I understand that, I take time, paragraph E, to make sure, and I don't always make sure, just so you know, I have to constantly stop and realign to this because when my secondary blessings are primary, I end up getting distracted in my walk with the Lord. When I'm looking at the money, it's coming or not coming. The impact, it's increasing or de decreasing. The favor is increasing or decreasing because in every season, it's a little different. I get captured in that and, in my, and my interaction with the Lord can be diminished. And the Lord is saying, I want you to be like Abraham. I want you to line your heart up 
to where the primary blessing, the primary reward is primary. And again, regularly I drift from that, but I've been intentional over the years to stop a couple times a year typically and go, Lord, I did it again. I've shifted in my focus over here, and I want to bring it back to where John the Apostle, his life is described here in uh, John 21. Let's look at Roman numeral 2. Let's go back to the very beginning. John's a young man. Uh, uh, some commentators say he's about 20. Some say he's younger than 20. He's a young man, and he meets the Lord. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord gives him this prophetic promise he renames him prophetically. I mean, that, that's a powerful thing. I mean, imagine Jesus or an angel standing in front of you and saying, the Lord calls you this and gives you a new name. You go, whoa. Because when the Lord names you, that is his way of saying, this is how you're going to function in the spirit. And you're going to relate to me in part based on this name I'm giving you. It describes some of that. Well, he calls him a son of thunder. John, you are a son of thunder. You know, this young 20-year-old or, or younger is like, wow, I believe that marked his heart. He goes, I'm going to be that. I'm going to walk in the Spirit as a th son of thunder. I don't know what it means right now, but I'm going to be that way. And I believe that uh, what happened is that John got a vision, even in his early days, that the revelation of God's love for him would thunder in his heart. And the revelation, I mean, and the impact and the overflow of love back for God would thunder in his heart. Now, when I say thunder, I don't want to exaggerate that where it's so dynamic that, you know, it's, you know, it's beyond, you know, uh, what, you know, practicality. And when I say thunder, a son of thunder, I'm not talking about an, a loud personality. I'm talking about a heart that's fully engaged. And I believe really the whole human race has thunderous emotions. Even the quietest personality, the person who doesn't hardly express themselves at all, inside those emotions are deep and they're strong. And they're maybe, for many different reasons, they express them differently than the person that's outwardly. So when I'm talking of being a son of thunder in the spirit, I'm not talking about how exuberant you are in a worship service. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the interaction of your heart with the Lord and he tells John, it's going to thunder inside of you. It's going to be real, and it's going to shift you and change you. Now, paragraph B, when you understand John's life a little bit, and I'll give a little bit in this uh, a short message here, that John started out as a son of thunder in the flesh. I mean, he was, I mean, he was aggressive even in his youth. And some of the ways that he expressed his emotion, he, on the early days, he was the guy that him and his brother we're going to the Lord and saying, hey, we want to sit at your right hand in the age to come forever, which translates, we want to be over everyone forever at your right hand. Is that okay? And Jesus, well, let's not go there right now. Let's, not, let's go somewhere different. And John, like when somebody didn't come to his meetings in Luke 9, he wanted to call fire down and burn the city up. And Jesus said, let's calm down, John. No. He goes, the wrong spirit. And I have these verses actually on... On page four, I, 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 we may not get there, but I've got some of the layout of some of John's thunderous personality and, and uh, uh, marked in his early days. And again, I think all human beings are created with a strength of emotion on the inside. Some of them have been shut down and some of them don't express it, but there's a storm of emotion in the human spirit that is created to be a thunderous interaction with God in the love of God, but it takes the grace of God to get there. And we thunder with all kinds of negative emotions on the front end. And when you look at John's life, you see the transition and the transformation, and that's a model. And we look at that because this son of thunder word in the spirit, I believe this is for everybody, every single believer. This is within reach by the grace of God if we want this. Now, paragraph C, I want you to pay particular attention to this. In one verse, at the very end of the Gospel of John, John 21, verse 20, John makes three statements about himself that give us real clear insight into how Jesus was his exceeding great reward. 
these three statements about how he carried his heart, and we want to understand them because we want to carry our heart like he did. That's, I'm only saying it so we do it. They give insight into what it means to live as a son of thunder. And it tells us the way that he carried his heart. Now, he's maybe 20 when Jesus first calls him a son of, son of thunder. And he writes the Gospel of John probably in his 90s. It's like 70 years later. Now, John, most of you know, he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wrote the book of Revelation, four books. And then the Gospel of John, many scholars say he wrote last. He wrote that actually at the end of his life when he's in his 90s. And the reason I'm making that point, because here in John 21, he's actually signing off. This is the last thing he's going to write. This is like his last statement to the body of Christ. And he goes, signing off. Let me tell you who I am and what I'm about. And it's remarkable he never says his name ever in the Gospel of John. But here he says, let me tell you who I am. I am, verse 20, look at this, uh, John 20, verse, uh, 21, verse 20. Number one, I'm the disciple that God loves. He goes, that's how I see myself. I'm the one who God loves. Now, all the others could have said the same. And I can imagine John saying, well, I hope they do. But if they don't, that's between them and God. But for me, I'm the one that God loves. That's who I am. That's what I do. That's what my life is about. Number two, I'm the one that leans on his heart. They can too. And I hope that they see themselves. But I view my life as one who has intentionally, for 70 years, I've leaned on his heart. I've sought to love him back. I didn't just want to be loved by him. I wanted to return it and be as close to him as I could. And thirdly, and this is an easy one to miss, he goes, I'm the one who the Lord whispered to the secret of what was happening in the betrayal of Judas. Now, it's not the point it's the betrayal of Judas. It's the point it was a secret that nobody else knew. I'm the one the Lord told his secrets to. And he could have said, he, the others as well can claim that. If they do, they do. If they don't, they don't. But as for me and my heart, I'm the one God loves. I'm the one that leans on God. And I live to interact and receive the secrets of his heart because it inspires me so much. It's such a privilege. Let's look at top of page two here. Again, this son of thunder reality is available to every believer. I mean, uh, whether it's a teenager or the elderly and all the ages in between. And I, I've determined... Years ago, I want these three things in my life. I want to keep signing up for these three realities. Well, I'm just going to give some real simple uh, definitions here. You, you, you already know them anyway. But I'm going to start off with uh, one of the, my favorite confessions for like 40 years. This is something I've said to the Lord for many, many thousands of times. And uh, I talked to the Lord. It started in my, in my 20s. I'm in my 60s now, you know. And I went back as a young pastor, and life would be hard, and problems, and situations, and disappointments, and delays. And, and I would ask this question, why am I pressing in, so going so hard after the Lord? And I have had, as you have had, and everybody has had, that common temptation, why don't I just draw back and not press in so hard? I mean, the discouraging situations, difficulties, obstacles, delays. I don't know. Maybe I should just coast for a little while. And then I would stop and I would think, Lord, let me figure this out. How does this work? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And I don't mean following the Lord in the general sense, but I mean going hard after the Lord. And we all have to answer this question over and over. Because I believe that the common temptation of the human race, believer and unbeliever, the, common, the most common temptation of the human race is the temptation to quit, to quit pressing hard. Unbelievers are pressing hard for whatever, but all of them at various times, they feel tempted to quit. And believers, we might be pressing hard for various things in our ministry at the Lord and things we're contending for, but for the Lord himself too. And everyone, the number one temptation, I'm convinced after many years of pastoring, is the temptation to draw back and coast. And there's many other temptations, but that's the common one. 
Whenever I talk about this, people go, man, that was talking directly to me. I say, yeah, and to 8 billion other people on the earth. It's always talking directly to us because this is something that's in front of all of us. And the reason I say that is so that you don't feel picked on like you're the only person that's being tempted with this. It is part of the human plight. But we can realign our heart. And I would say, Lord, why? Why should I keep pressing in? You know, I'm 22, 25, 28. And I would stop and I'd go, wait a second. You're the Genesis 1 God of creation. You're the God that created the stars. And you really like me. Wow. That's pretty intense. I mean, you're pursuing me. That makes me pretty special. I mean, he's pursuing all the whole human race, but hey, he's pursuing me. I go, for you to pursue me? Wow. But it doesn't stop there because that's actually not enough. I have to respond to that spark of grace to where I pursue him too so that I'm in his family. And I would stop and I'd say, you love me. I love you. I'm already successful in the most primary way, not in the secondary way, because there's secondary ways that, of our commissions and our mandates and our assignments in the Lord. But in the primary way, I'm already successful. You love me. I love you. I got it made for billions and billions of years. I'm in the family. You know, the analogy I've used over the years is the thief on the cross. You know, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he dies that day, and he steps across that line into the, into the heavenly realm. He's looking around going, oh, my goodness. I had no idea this existed. If I knew I was a king, I would never have been a thief because the scripture says we're kings and priests. I never, I didn't know who I was. Oh, my, he's only been in the family of God three, three hours or, or more, whatever, just a few hours. He goes, if I knew this is who I was, I never would live that way. Beloved of however many people that have been on, on the earth since Adam and Eve, you know, say 10 or 15 billion, I don't really know. I just made up that number. 10 or 15 billion, only a billion or two or three are born again and saved and in the family of God. That means that couple billion people, they are the most successful people of the human race. Because billions that maybe achieved way more than the natural, if they're not in the family, they are not as successful as the, as the simple thief on the cross is. The thief on the cross is actually, you take a step back, look at the billion-year picture, he's in the aristocracy of the royal family forever and ever, and he hasn't made even a few hours in the faith he is far more successful than many kings and wealthy uh, 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 merchants and great conquerors of the earth. He's far more successful than they are because he's in the family, the aristocracy forever. So are you. And you're in the minority of the human race because, again, if there's a billion believers on the earth today, well, there's eight billion people. That makes you of the minority and, therefore, one of the most successful people. But... Many believers, they don't touch that at all. They only see what they're accomplishing outward, and they think, ah, oh, I'm a loser. Nothing's happening. And the Lord says, not really true. You're in my family forever. You actually have it made in a way you don't even begin to understand. So I would do these push-ups, these spiritual push-ups. I would say, you love me, I love you. I'm already successful. Then I would kind of get my, you know, heart realigned, and then that difficult circumstance, that unanointed ministry, that the money's not coming in, I looked at it differently. I went, I don't like that negative stuff. I, I, I wish I wanted to go away, but I got a life in my spirit. I can face that in a very different way because I'm not doing those things so I can become successful I'm doing those things from a place of already being successful, and you approach it very, very differently. Now, I agree that being successful in our secondary areas of life is important, but it's not the primary thing. And if it's primary, it can really knock the wind out of you and discourage you when things aren't going right. But if I take a step back and see who I am to him, I can say, you know, I can face setbacks. 
because I've got it made. I'm in the family, not just the family, I'm in the ruling class of the family forever. Billions of years, billions. I got it made here. This is not so bad. Now I'm already successful, so I can face all kinds of things. Well, paragraph B, I like to talk about seeing our, whether you call it success or our identity. I'm kind of using those terms a little bit inter interchangeably. Our spiritual identity, what is it? It's how we perceive that God sees us. Our spiritual identity is how we perceive God evaluates us. Our natural identity is how we perceive that people see us and evaluate us. And our natural identity is how we perceive ourselves by what we're accomplishing. And you can say our spiritual identity or our spiritual success, whichever, you know, you could use those words interchangeably. And when I line up to see my spiritual identity, and it takes conscious intentionality to do this. I go, I want to say what God says about me. Because what I see in the natural is so different than what God says about me in the spirit. He perceives me as valuable and already successful in the ultimate way. Yes, I want to be successful in those secondary ways. But if he sees me ultimately successful in the ultimate way already, he loves me and I have that spark of grace where right? I love him. Not at the measure I want to. I want to be more mature. But it's real and it moves him. I go, things are good. I mean, it may be hard in the natural outwardly for you know, a few more years, a few more decades, but for billions of years. Beloved, you're good forever. And some folks say, well, that's kind of pie in the sky. No. You read the New Testament, being anchored in that is foundational to the apostolic faith because that makes us view life very differently in setbacks and hardships, etc. Well, paragraph C, John wanted to be known by how he related to Jesus not what he accomplished before men. And again, that's a, that takes effort, intentionality to transition our mindset kind of inch by inch, year by year, over to that reality. Doesn't happen overnight. For instance, paragraph D, I want you to pay attention to this one if you're looking at the notes. Uh, John had one of the most remarkable spiritual resumes in, in salvation history. I mean, Think about what John accomplished he had in the natural. Number one, he was in relationship to some of the most prominent anointed people in salvation history. Jesus is on the cross. He looks at John and says, John, my mother, she is now your mother. And Mary lives with John. How would you like to Mary live in your house? Like, not Mary, you have coffee with her once, live with you for years. Like, are you kidding me? He was very good friends with the Apostle Peter. Very good friends with Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was instrumental in a number of the great revivals in the book of Acts. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. Acts 8 at Samaria. Acts 19 at Ephesus. Paul was the leader at Ephesus, but John became the pastor of Ephesus after, John, after Paul left. That's remarkable. The number of revivals that he was involved in the number of people he was close to that were prominent and anointed in God's salvation purposes. He wrote five books of the Bible. I don't mean he just gave a couple accurate prophecies. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. These books are in the Word of God forever. Could you imagine the privilege of that? Well, it goes on. Jesus looked at him, well, the other 12, and said, you're going to rule on a throne in Israel forever. Could you imagine if the Lord appeared to you and said, you will be on a throne ruling with me in, in Israel forever? That's pretty big stuff. I mean, that's, that, that's a big resume. Well, it goes on beyond that. He has this revelation. I mean, he sees the, uh, the book of Revelation, and he sees the new Jerusalem. And, in, and I have the verse there on the notes. He looks down, and on the foundation of the wall, he sees his name, John. All the apostles, their names are on the... Could you imagine your name on the foundation of the walls of the New Jerusalem? But the point I'm getting at, paragraph E, every time he mentions himself, he doesn't say author of the word of God, prominent leader of early church revivals, writer of the Bible, named on the 
foundation stone and good friends with Peter, Paul, and Mary. He did not say that. Everybody over 50 is the ones that are laughing. Anyway. He said he never mentions his name. Every time he refers to himself in the Gospel of John, the last book he wrote probably, he says, the man who God loves, the guy who God loves. Yeah, but you're the guy who wrote the Bible. Nah, I'm not concerned with that. He loves me. This is where I live. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I'm about. Well, let's go Roman numeral four on the teaching notes here. And I'm just going to say those three things again and just take a minute or two, a couple minutes on each one of them, and then pray for you. It's so simple. It's not mysterious at all. But it takes being reminded, plumb-lined, and realigning to this again. Number one, spiritual identity. He saw himself as the one Jesus loved. Again, five times he mentions himself in the gospel. Each time, that's the way he describes it. I mean, he might really have been founder of the great revival in Jerusalem, all those kinds of things that another preacher might have used. Look at uh, paragraph one under A. At the Last Supper, Jesus says the most, I believe this, most remarkable statement in human history. I can't even comprehend how big of a statement this is. I don't know that any other statement could surpass this in importance. I'm talking about in human history. Here is the Son of God, the uncreated God Jesus, who's now a man, fully God, fully man. He looks him in the eye, and in John 15, 9, he says, let me paraphrase, I love you in the same intensity that God the Father loves me. What? I love you like God the Father loves me. Beloved, I can't fathom anything more dynamic and important than that statement. And he says an hour or two later, and all of you will stumble tonight, and you'll betray me, you'll draw back from me, but that doesn't change the fact. I love you in the same intensity the Father loves me. Now here's one of my little contentions that I hope to, I plan on bringing up when I meet Peter and Matthew and Luke and those guys. And probably I won't be able to, but I'm going to try to. I'm going to say, Peter, why didn't you say that in your epistles? John's the only one who wrote this most dynamic statement uttered by Jesus. I love you in the same way the Father loves me. Peter, why didn't you write that down? Mark, how come you never wrote it? Matthew, why did you leave that out? Probably I won't be able to ask any of that. Probably they'll say, the Holy Spirit, just be quiet, little guy. Okay, that's probably how it go. But I'm thinking, what a dramatic statement. But John, he's in his 90s now. He's drawing back 70 years ago. He never let go of that. He goes, he loves me like the Father loves him. Well, John, why didn't the others say it? I don't know. That's between them and God. But as for me and my heart, this is who I am forever. Beloved, I want to urge you to take that verse and make that part of your confession before the Lord. That you not just say that's true, you say, talk to Jesus, say, Jesus, thank you that you love me like the Father loves you. Show me more. And the Holy Spirit say, oh, if you ask me, I will show you more. Uh, that's one of my favorite prayers in life, this verse. Thank you. Show me more. Show me how you feel about me. Show me how you, the Father feels about you and how you feel about me. This is fun. I love this conversation. Show me more. And the Holy Spirit will say something like, I've just been waiting for you to ask. You know, I, I'm assuming many believers have never, ever thanked Jesus for that truth or ever asked the Holy Spirit to show them more. And the Holy Spirit will show you more if you do. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming many have, but I'm assuming many have never, ever even brought this up to the Lord. I can't think of anything more dynamic than this. Now, I like to say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but... It's actually real, but it's kind of cute, too, is that uh, because Jesus loves me in the intensity, he, the Father loves him, that makes me God's favorite. That makes you God's favorite. That makes a billion of us God's favorite. Because he loves me in that intensity doesn't diminish him loving you in that intensity. He's like, I am your favorite. I am the one you love. Well, the other billion too. But I am right there at the center of your heart. This is who I am. This is what I do. Paragraph B. 
on the very same night, I've already mentioned this, here in Matthew 26, he goes, you're all going to stumble tonight. So my loving you, what I said at the Last Supper a few hours ago, they had the Last Supper, then they, they leave the upper room and they go to the Mount of Olives. And he goes, that's not changed just because I understand you're going to stumble tonight. Because some of us have this idea that he only feels that way as long as we don't stumble. And I want to say this, that, uh, you know, having pastored for, for these many years, one of the major things that you run into, we all run into it, is people get so uh, entrapped with condemnation and accusation and the sense of their failure. And I want to say this, that when you fail, when I fail, bring it before the Lord, sincerely repent of it, and then say what God says about you from then on. I want to say this. It is pride, spiritual pride, to think your sin is bigger than his embrace of you. I can outsin your love. He says, really? You think you can outsin what I did for you on the cross and my heart for you after you've repented and asked me to forgive you? And you declared war on that sin. You might even stumble it in a number of more times, but you've sincerely declared war on it. You can't. Some people just feel good about feeling bad. They think, oh, woe is me. They put themselves on spiritual probation for a few months. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. Just give me a little cabin on the edge of glory. Don't bother with me. Just let me get out of the way. It's like, stop. He loves you like the Father loves him. He died for you. You are his bride. Come near him. Yeah, but I did something terrible. Repent of it. Take the blood. Take his confession over you and live with it. You are the disciple that the Lord loves. It's yours if you want it. It's yours if you want it. Paul, I mean, John took hold of that. I mean, he ran with it. You know, uh, I have here in paragraph C, I mean, he took hold of this for 60, 70 years. Uh, that, you know, it's, when you know that he loves you, then you don't have the same anxiety and striving to get the influential and popular people to pay attention to you. It's very common, it's, it's a human reality, from elementary school to university to the marketplace to the career, get the influential people to pay attention. Pay attention to me. I have good news for you. The most powerful, wealthy, influential man in human history is paying attention to you already. His name is Jesus, and his eyes are locked in on you. And as a, a pastor, I've heard this over the years, I feel unheard, unnoticed, no one listens. My voice is lost. I'll say, maybe in the eyes of some men, that's true, but not in his eyes. You are paid attention to. You are noticed, and your voice is not lost. So don't, that might be true in the natural in a number of situations. Don't make that your primary way that you view yourself. His eyes are on me. I tell you, if his eyes are on me, I don't have to make sure that other guy's looking at me because his eyes are on me. Let's look at top of page two. Let's look at spiritual identity number two. John said, I lean on his heart. I want to go deep. He was, he's saying, I want to go deep in God. I want to give everything. Paragraph B, the psalmist talked about the man who set his love on God. John, in this leaning on him, he's saying, I'm setting my heart upon you. I'm setting my heart upon you. Now, paragraph C, this is interesting, and, and I'll give you more on page four, although we might not get there, but uh, the boldness and the confidence that John has to lean on the Lord's heart at the, at the upper room. Because, again, I have the verses on uh, page four, but in Luke 9, six months before the cross, John and James are arguing, we want to be the greatest, we want to be at the right hand. Again, that means we want to be over everyone forever at the right hand. We want to be under Jesus but over everybody else. Like, wow, that's a big request, guys. So well, that's six months before, and Jesus says, in essence, just calm down, you guys. Then two months before the cross, in Mark chapter 10, they bring it up again. And they're debating. We want to be at your right hand. Jesus says, well, we addressed that about four months ago, didn't we? Now it's Mark 10, it's about two months. Then in Matthew 20, about two weeks before the cross, their little Jewish mom, I don't know if she's little, but I just pictured a little Jewish mom, whatever, just comes and says, hey, Jesus, points at him, 
How about my boys at your right and left hand? They won't drop this. They sent mom after Jesus. And so three times, Jesus, in essence, you got to read between the lines. It's like, guys, let's calm down on this. So three pushbacks. Then at the Last Supper, Peter comes walking in. They're all at the table. There's John right next to Jesus, leaning right there at his right hand. He wouldn't back down from this. He goes, you know what? I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm going to be next to him. Lean, I mean, the boldness of him after three pushbacks, he says, I don't care. I'm going for it anyway because I know he loves me. And so I love John's heart in this. Roman numeral six, spiritual identity number three. Spiritual identity number three. He positioned himself to receive God's secrets. Now the situation, the specific situation, is the, the scandal of Judas's betrayal. But don't limit it to that because the, the issue is that Jesus is speaking, whispering to John what was deeply troubling his heart. And he trusted John with that information. So paragraph A, John 21, verse 20, he's the disciple whom, who, the Lord says, who's the one who, who asked the Lord who's betraying you? What he's really saying is, Jesus, I want to be near, I want to know what is near and dear to your heart. And of course, Jesus' heart is so big, but little fragments, little portions of inspiration of what's near to his heart is so important. Paragraph B, notice the context. In John 13, Jesus is troubled in his spirit, saying someone in the apostolic team is going to betray us. Now, Jesus is troubled early in the evening. We find out in Luke 22, some hours later, six hours later, eight hours later, he is so troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's sweating drops of blood. So in the same evening that he knows he's facing the cross coming right up, He's in so much anguish, one thing causes him anguish as well. The betrayal of Judas, like, really? I mean, now, we've, we are so familiar with Judas being the betrayer that we're like, what's the big deal? This was a huge deal. Jesus, I'm hurting in my heart about something right now, and I'm hurting in context, really hurting, and you'll see in a few minutes, in a few hours, when I sweat drops of blood, but even though I'm going to really suffer that way, I can't let go of this. My heart is in pain. When he saw Judas in the garden, Jesus, with no exaggeration, looked at him and said, my friend, Judas, I love you. I love you. And Judas was so trusted by the apostolic company, they made him the treasure. They didn't have a thought he was going to betray Jesus and betray the apostolic company. And so Jesus says, someone's, I'm hurting. I'm hurting. That's really what he's saying. I'm hurting. Someone's going to betray us happens to be the occasion, but I'm hurting. And, and. And uh, Peter, look at Peter, look at this. Uh, verse 24, Peter motions to John. He says, because Peter's sitting down the way. He came in a little bit late, you know, and he's a couple seats down. He says, come on, come on. He goes, ask Jesus who it is. I mean, he's hurting. I want to know what's on his heart. Something's really troubling him. I, I mean, we don't see him troubled like this. This is, there's a, there's a big hurt. There's a pain. Something big is happening. And so Peter you read the Gospels, he's always blurting out things that are out of line. But this one time, he sees the seriousness of the pain or the depth of this on Jesus' heart, so he knows the one guy that's especially close to Jesus. He goes, I'm not going to blurt out this time. You go ask him. He'll tell you, because you, you are always leaning in close to him. You and him have this thing going on. He'll whisper it to you. Roman numerals, I mean, uh, letter C. How do we become people who receive the secrets of his heart? I want to be a, I don't want to just know about a scandal. I want to know the things on his heart. Well, the classic picture in the Gospels or person is Mary of Bethany. And most of us, we've heard the Mary of Bethany call for many years here. We prioritize this a lot, but just real quick. Mary of Bethany, a young lady, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus to listen to his word. It's as simple as that. Her older sister, Martha, who's in the kitchen working, is saying, Jesus, correct my younger sister and tell her to help in the kitchen. 
And Jesus says, look at verse 42, Martha, Martha, there's one thing needed. It's needed. And later he says, it, it is good that she's doing it, and she chose it. And I'm not going to take it from her. Now, just a 20-second thing. i got to give Martha a little love here. Serving in the kitchen is not what Jesus was, was, was uh, comparing Mary's devotion to. Martha wasn't wrong because she's in the kitchen. If people weren't in the kitchen, the whole earth is going to collapse. Trust me. The kitchen is really important, the kitchen. Martha was serving with the wrong spirit. That's what Jesus was, was uh, correcting, saying, hey, uh, undoubtedly Mary served in the kitchen. Everybody needs to serve in the kitchen some. But the point is, he's saying, Martha, you're missing it. She is, this is needed. And you can have this heart too, even while you're serving in the kitchen. So it's not picking the prayer room versus the kitchen. It's picking serving, but in a spirit of devotion and connection to the Lord. And he goes, it's a good thing, and she chose it. Beloved, nobody can choose this for you. Nobody can. And Mary had to choose it over and over and over. I know in my own life, I have to choose it, and then I lose it. Then I choose it again. Some months go by, I lose it. I got to choose it again. This, she chose it. I go, yeah, I, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. This, this is critical that we cho choose it because no one could do it for us. Paragraph E, interesting. Mary has no public ministry. She's never mentioned in the book of Acts. She's never known by anybody except for the person who sat before the Lord to talk to him. Now, when I think of the grace that was on Mary and the grace upon John the Apostle, I think of this grace, now catch this, to linger long in his presence, taking the word, it's a grace on our heart, to linger long in the presence of the Lord with the word open and we're having conversation with him from the word. Now, lingering, that grace to linger long is different, is, is expressed different in every person's life. Every one of you will do that in a way different than the person next to you. And you'll do it different in your 20s from your 30s and you'll do it different in your 50s than you did in your 40s. Every season of your life, you'll do it different. And every person will do it different. But here's my point. So don't try to be like him or her. Ask the Lord. Say, this is my inheritance. I want to linger long in the Word. I don't know what long means, and I don't know how to do that. The Lord says, talk to me, and I'll give you the grace I gave Mary. And John the Apostle had this same grace. And I don't say this as uh, something like, oh, you better get with it. I'm saying this is a beautiful glorious gift of grace to touch anyone who wants it. And over the years I've pastored, I've, as I've shared this verse over the years about Mary, how many times, I mean, it seems like a thousand times a thousand, not really, that's exaggerated, but uh, how many times you, you, throw the, you, you put the Mary of Bethany lifestyle and they go, yeah, but what about? What, what about the lost? What about the needs? What about the people? What about the family? What about the relationships? What about the money? There's a hundred whatabouts. And I hear whatabouts all the time. And the Lord doesn't want us to set the whatabouts against growing in that heart. Don't quickly give up that grace in one of those religious whatabouts. Because they're all over the body of Christ. A hundred reasons not to do this. But I want to say it again. Jesus said, Martha, it's needed Martha, it is good. It's really good that she did this. And so don't let somebody steal this grace out of your heart with a religious what about. Well, what about the people? What about, what about, what about? I think we can do both. I think we can have the Mary of Bethany grace and still do our assignment in God and be responsible to our families. But it takes the Holy Spirit's help for the nuances to administrate that in the right way. Because again, what, the way you'll do it in your 20s and 30s will be different than your 40s and 50s. Well, every decade will probably be different than the one before. Paragraph F, the secrets of the Lord. He'll give them to you. Now, when I mean the secrets, I don't mean the names of angels that are unnamed in the Bible. We get some secret of, you know, how the spirit realm works. I'm not talking about secrets like that. I'm t I mean, he might give you one of those or whatever. I'm talking about those slight even small impressions from the word about his heart. Where I have, I remember when I was 15, 16 years old when I first met the Lord. And they told me I had to teach a Bible study to the 
12-year-olds in junior high. Like, I didn't even know the difference between a gospel, an epistle, apostle, and a disciple. I go, I got to teach a Bible study? Are you kidding? I didn't know where Colossians was. They go, yeah, you, got, you have to. And so my youth group made me get a, you know, some junior high kids and teach them, which is, oh, my goodness, whatever I said, I hope it's forgotten. But anyway, I remember 16 years old. I'm 66 now. That was 50 years ago. I remember being excited when a truth hit my heart. Going, wow, this is amazing. I mean, little simple little things. And 60 years later, and all through the, not every day, the first 50 years, but all through the years, those little fragments of insight, they excite me. I want to say this, and many of you can say the same. There's nothing more pleasurable than when God reveals God to the human spirit from the word. Little fragments of insight, whoa, and the Lord could say something like, hey, little guy, you don't even have 1% of what I'm going to give you over the billion years to come. You're at the beginning of the beginning. It is a beautiful, glorious thing when God sparks our heart with the secret of his heart, a little inspiration. You don't ever want to lose that. Well, look at paragraph four, page four. I've already said it, so I can do this rapid fire and bring this to an end. How John, because it's us, it's our story, went from being a son of thunder in the flesh to a son of thunder in the spirit. He was transformed, and the big way he's transformed is by seeing how Jesus saw him. Because he's, you know, 20 years old or younger, and he hears Jesus say, I love you like the Father loves me. And this 20-year-old, this 18-year-old goes, really? I'm taking hold of that. It took a while for it to get him. I'm sure it took a while for it to register. So paragraph B, I've already said it. They're six months out from the cross. They're arguing. Who's the greatest? And it's John and James when you read the whole story and compare it with other passages. Paragraph one, they're two months out in Capernaum. And John, Jesus, look at this. In Mark 10, 33, Jesus says, they're two months out about. You don't know exactly. But uh, Jesus says, the son of man's going to be betrayed and be killed in Jerusalem. Now catch this. I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem and betrayed. John goes, hey, can I be over everyone forever after you die? John, let me say it again. I'm going to be betrayed. Oh, that's intense. Could I be over everyone forever at your right hand? Earth to John. You're not listening to what he just said. John was preoccupied. I mean, he had a thunder in his heart. Look at this. Verse 41, and the 10 were really upset. You know when Judas is upset because you got a bad spirit? You got a bad spirit. <laughs> Judas, that's ridiculous, you know. When he says that, that is bad. Then number two, mom comes when they're about two weeks out. Says the same thing. Let's go to paragraph C. Just, I want you to catch the intensity of John. And worship team, go ahead and come on up. Catch the intensity of John. We're back at the six months earlier, before the cross. We're back in Luke 9. John says, and you can read it on your own, Luke 9, verse 49. He goes, hey, Jesus, there's this guy casting demons out. But he's not under our leadership. I stopped him. Don't worry. You stopped him? Well, he's not under us. Yeah, but he's casting demons out. Yeah, I know, but, you know, you got to do things right. He's not under us. We stopped him. Don't worry. It's covered. He looked at John and goes, John, don't stop people liberating other people in, the, in my name. Yeah, but they're not under us. A few minutes later, paragraph D. Oh, this village we went to, we told them about you. They said, whatever. Can we sit in fire and just burn them and just nuke them? <laughs> Jesus goes, Verse 55, John, you don't know what manner of spirit. You're off right now. You're going to be a son of thunder of the spirit. Stay with it, John. He goes, no, you can't burn them. Look at the <laughs> passage underneath. About five years later in Acts 8, they went to Samaria. John did five years later about. He released the spirit on him. He did send the fire, but the good fire on them. <laughs> Beloved, this is our journey. The Lord says, whatever thunder you have in you, I can replace it if you want to line up with me even as that young John did. And I transformed him. I can transform you. Let's just stand before the Lord and just ask him just to bless us and come and touch us. Here we are, Lord. Lord, we say, I want to be a son of thunder in the spirit. Lord, I admit, and 
over my days on the earth. I've had wrong thunder, wrong ambitions. There's bitternesses and temptations and wrong ideas and anger and all kinds of emotions that as humans we have. He says, I can change you like I changed John. I can change even you. I can change even you. Well, Lord, here I am. I'm the one God loves. I'm the one that's going to lean on God's heart. This is who I am. This is what I do. I want the secrets of your heart. I want my heart exhilarated by those little flashes of inspiration. When I open the Bible, all my days, I want that pleasure when I feel inside of your heart. Lord, here we are before you. We want that Mary of Bethany grace, that John the Apostle grace to linger long.
anybody that would like prayer for your body, physical healing, come up and stand on this front line up here. We're going to take a few more minutes. The others, I bless you and go and get your children from the children's ministry. And when you go there, look at the workers in the eye and say, thank you for blessing my children. But for those of you that would like prayer for your body or maybe your heart is hurting, come and stand on this front line up here if you would. Because so the other folks come up behind you can be on the second line. Yeah. I'm going to ask about 40 or 50 of you in the room. Just come up and pray for one or two people for just two or three minutes. Just lay your hand on their shoulder and just say, Lord, heal them. It's not our personalities. It's not our language. It's the name of Jesus that heals. The others stand on the second line if you're coming up behind the, the first line. Lord, come in your power for healing right now. We speak healing to their physical body. Over Alpha, manifest your name. Oh, the Lord says, I love it when you ask for me to heal. I'm going to ask about 10 or 20 more of you. If you love to pray for people, come on up. Even if you're new here, just come on up and pray for people. Do what you love to do. Do what you need to do, Jesus. I speak healing over their body. Each one of these, you know their needs. Over their eyes, their heart, their organs, their skeletal structures, whatever manner of illness or injury. We ask you for healing, Lord, power right now. More, Lord, sweep through this auditorium with healing power. Grace to ask again, Lord. Come and tenderize hearts and heal bodies right now. Healing power. Spirit. Jesus, heal over our bodies now. Jesus' name right now. I speak to those eyes. I speak to those organs. I speak to those injuries. I speak to cancer, tumors, whatever disease. Jesus, we speak your name over them. Jesus, the wonder, make our bodies decide. Over a tormenting spirit, Jesus, the even wonder, nightmares in the night, a torment in the night, we take authority over We break Jesus, the power of oppression right now. Make our bodies decide. Of Jesus, the wonder, yes. Make our bodies decide. Jesus the wonder, make our bodies the sign of Jesus the wonder, make our bodies the sign of Jesus the wonder. Oh, David, send your healing, pull on the hem of your garment. Lord, let us touch the hem of your garment even now. Son of David, have mercy on us today. But I ask you for terminal diseases to be healed today, right now.
would you trust me again to ask? Ask me would again. Would you trust me again to ask? Ask me he again. He says, I know your heart's been hardened. I know through the years of waiting, your heart's been hardened. He says, there's grace today for that softened heart. There's grace today to ask again. We say fresh faith arise. We say fresh faith arise in this room, in this place today, to believe that you are who you say you are. Fresh grace today. We'll open up our hearts. Open our hearts, Lord. We'll ask you for the healing. We're asking for grace and healing we'll grace. Son of David, have mercy. 